0: On a Wednesday in October, back in the fall of 2014, I woke up to my normal 5.45 alarm. But something was very different when I got up. I had a vivid dream the night before that I heard someone downstairs. I didn't really think much of it because when I checked on my wife and daughter, they were sleeping soundly. But when I went downstairs to put on the morning coffee pot, the pantry window was wide open. I realized that our old Dell laptop that served as a TV was gone, which really bummed me out because I was in the middle of a really good show. Thankfully, there was no one in the house. Whoever robbed us was long gone. When the police were called, they said to take an inventory, inventory of all the things that were stolen. Well, after I spent 15 minutes looking at my bookshelf, my wife assured me that they didn't take the works of John Calvin or Martin Luther, that my book collection would be just fine. That was true enough, but part of me was secretly hoping that they would have taken the Bible and a book on the Ten Commandments because this way maybe we would have gotten back my Dell laptop. Well, when the police came, they dusted for fingerprints. The fingerprints would reveal who was behind the theft their identity could not be hidden any longer. Soon we would know who this person was. Now, unfortunately, because the house was a hundred years old, there were a lot of fingerprints all over the place, and we never found exactly who the person was. Well, if you're joining us today, we are in the midst of a sermon series in the book of Colossians, And in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is pastorally speaking to these Christians about how they are to conduct their lives in the world and in the life of the church. So last week, Paul reminded these Colossians where their fingerprints used to turn up before they encountered Jesus Christ and were given a new identity. Their lives were devoted to unlawful acts. They would grab for things that didn't belong to them. They wouldn't think twice about fulfilling their their sexual desires with with whomever and whenever they wanted. Their ruling passion was to take all that they wanted for themselves and they would use anger, slander, and lies to assist them. God's law was written on their hearts, but they trespassed against it, where their fingerprints turned up in the world would truly show that they were guilty before a holy God. And according to Scripture, not just the Colossians, but all of us fall short of God's holy standards. Now, on account of how they were living, Paul tells us that they were guilty before God's judgments. He says this, on account of these The wrath of God is coming, but that is not how they remained. When they encountered Jesus in the gospel, they were issued a new ID. They were given a new set of prints. They were given a new beginning. Well, how did that happen? Verse 3 of chapter 3, they died with Christ. Verse 1, they were raised with Christ and, they were, and then they ascended with Christ. Verse 4, and then they will be glorified with Christ. This new lease on life was not something that they paid for, but was purchased for them by Jesus Christ and was given to them freely as a gift. Paul makes the point that no one is too high or too shabby or, too, or in too shabby of a state for Christ to renew or to save from God's judgment. This is how I would summarize what Paul says at the end of those verses we looked at last week. Whatever used to define you, your obedience or your disobedience, your religion or your ethnicity, your social status, is not what measures your life anymore. Being in Christ is what defines you now. That was Paul's message last week. It's important for us to feel the weight of what Paul is saying here, so I want to illustrate this a little further. Back in the 1970s, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, was convicted of seven murders and several assaults. And shortly after he was convicted of these crimes, he converted to Christianity. And every two years when his parole hearing came up, he would always say the following things consistently. Number one, I don't deserve to be released for my crimes because I did them and I regret doing them. And secondly, I no longer recognize the person who committed these crimes because Jesus Christ has changed my life. He would say, I found my new calling to help others in jail with kindness and compassion now. Interesting to see that the two virtues he identifies there are the virtues that we have in our passage today. He must have been recently reading that passage. It appears that David Berkowitz is truly a changed man. So is Paul saying, and are we saying that just because David Berkowitz has joined his life to Jesus Christ by faith, that on the last day, God's judgment against him will not stand? Paul is saying much more than that. Not only will David Berkowitz be spared on on the day of God's judgment, but together with all believers in Christ, he will be placed in the highest seat of honor to the right hand of the Father. God is that loving. What Jesus accomplished is that amazing, and the gospel is that scandalously good to all. And here's the flip side of that truth. Some of you dream big about your future achievements. You hope to head up a department, to run a company, to have a big family. But what Paul is saying is that the highest platform you could ever hope to climb up to is far below what Jesus Christ has already given to you in the gospel. You can't get any higher. Than being seated at the right hand of the Father, our Creator. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. That's what Paul said last week. So, with Jesus at the center, everything changes and nothing can remain the same. We might put it this way, the point of the verses that we read last week and the verses that we're looking at this week is that our new identity in Christ requires a new look to go along with it. We might ask the question, why is Paul using this language of putting on and putting off in these verses? Well, scholars note that putting on new clothes is exactly the image that Paul is working with to talk about our new life in Christ. Some say that in this area of Colossae, the woolen industry was was a big part of the local economy, so Paul is using that imagery to talk about the gospel in concrete ways. So to sum up what Paul has been saying, because the Colossians are now in Christ, they can't show off the old clothes anymore that belongs to their sinful nature. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, they bring harm to the community. They now must be put aside now that they are Christians. And now this week Paul is saying, here is the attire that is appropriate for all Christians to wear, and it never goes out of fashion. So here's the outline for today. Because Christ is at the center of our life as individuals and as a community, the, the attire, this attire that He has given us must be displayed in our character, in our worship, and really, Paul says, in all of our living. So let's now look first at the Christ-like character Paul talks about in verses 12-14. through 14. Notice how Paul addresses these church members. He says he calls them God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We heard these terms earlier in Deuteronomy in reference to God's people in the Old Testament. These Colossians now are part of God's family. They have the same status as the Old Testament people of God. They enjoy the same privileges as them before God. They are no longer destined for wrath, but rather for God's special purposes in the world. To use the words of Deuteronomy that we heard earlier, they are God's most treasured possession. We might put it this way, they are now of platinum value. But as special as it might be to be associated with God's Old Testament people, it takes on a whole nother level of significance because these terms were used in reference to God's Son, Jesus Christ. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father ripped open the heavens and publicly declared, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And because these Colossian Christians are now in Christ, God is just as well pleased with them. Friends in Jesus Christ, God is just as well pleased with you. What God said about Israel, what God said about his perfect son, Jesus Christ, he says about you today in the gospel. It's yours too. Now, if because of Christ they have this status before God, they ought to dress the part. That's what Christ-like character calls for. Anything else will be ill-fit or inappropriate. So then Paul then lays out these Christ-like characteristics. Do you see that there in verse 12? He starts with compassion. One day when Jesus got off the boat when He was with the disciples, Matthew tells us He looked out and He saw a great crowd and He healed the sick and He had heartfelt compassion for them. Jesus showed awareness and care for the troubles that He encountered around Him. I wonder, is it our response when we see a great crowd on Sunday? or when we see a great crowd in the city or on the school bus are we moved to compassion towards others and their needs christian compassion starts with the heart but it doesn't end there it moves to the hands jesus was compassionate and he what and he healed Compassion sees a need and acts on it. It doesn't just feel bad about the things going on around it. No, it does something about it. In fact, to complement this compassion, Paul then says we ought to add kindness. Being polite or tolerating other people around us just to be nice just scratches the surface of what Paul means here by kindness. Kindness. What does kindness mean? It means breaking the normal conventions and the normal operating procedures to do good to other people. It supports a colleague at work with their work projects. Kindness picks up an additional chore around the house to help a family member. Kindness brings good to others in unexpected ways. In fact... Kindness, every act of kindness, is a mini-portrait of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 3. When we were led astray, the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, and He saved us, not because of works done by us, but according to His own mercy. In the gospel, God goes out of His way to show us His goodness. I want to ask you, in what relationships and in what areas of your life is God calling you to break in with kindness? Where is God calling you to lend a hand when it would just be easier to ignore it altogether? Now, How do we become the kind of people who are compassionate and who are kind in the way that God commands us here? How do we do that? Well, Paul tells us, to kindness and compassion, we are to add humility, meekness, patience, and above all, love. All these have in common that they put other people first, and that's not easy. But it shouldn't surprise us that it's not easy. Not just because our old sinful nature still sticks to us so tightly, but because our society puts on pedestals flashy personalities, idolizes high achievers, and trumpets productivity as the tool that measures the worth of an individual. In other words, be number one. And if you can't be number one, be as close to the number one as possible. Now, all of us should aim to do our best. We should work hard at our callings. There's nothing wrong, per se, with even marketing or networking, meeting influential people to help us take the next step in our career. But what Paul is saying is that these imprints you make in the world are not what will most define you is not what you're going to be known for when we approach the kingdom of heaven. What is most important, what you are to strive for, is to express love through humility, meekness, and patience. Now, a humble person looks around and asks, what can I do to serve others? Even though it may cost me my time, my reputation, or even my career advancement. Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, Paul tells us in Philippians. Likewise, a meek person makes concessions for others. A meek person strives with all their might to achieve second place. Before the Super Bowl, quarterback Brock Purdy of the San Francisco 49ers was asked about what it took to get to the big game. I don't think I'm allowed to say Super Bowl because this is being recorded, right? Isn't that how that works? Any lawyers around here? Can anyone tell me? This is what Brock Purdy said First of all, glory to God. He gives us this opportunity, and for us, it's a team sport. Defense did their job, boys on offense took care of business, coach called a great game, and we had, when we had the faithful fans behind us the whole way, we love you guys. Did you notice who we didn't mention in his comments? Now, I use this as an example, not to rub it into the 49 er sports fans among us, but simply to show meek people do not always win in this world. But that is not the aim of their life. Instead, meek people live in dependence on God so that others may be built up. Their aim is to have Christ-like character. They may not win a Super Bowl ring yet. There's always next year. But according to Jesus, they will inherit the earth. Now, Paul is a really good pastor. He's a really good doctor of the soul. He knows that if he prescribes humility and meekness, patience is needed. You see, it's easy to serve other people in the community when they are grateful, when they display good character, when they're attractive, when it's a pleasure to be in their company. That's easy to do. It's another thing to serve people when we find them draining, Difficult? Annoying? Don't look at me like that. To have Christ-like character throughout a lifetime, we need to learn how we can endure with others, to be long-tempered, to forgive them if they have wronged us, New Testament scholar Grant Osborne puts it so well when he says this, we must learn to endure the weakness of others and allow them to grow alongside ourselves. Why should we do that? Because God is patient with our failures. God in Christ forgave and is forgiving us every day so we are to learn how to forbear with those around us. We must be willing to accept their foibles and their faults. Now, some of you are saying compassion, kindness, humility, and patience, it's too much to keep coordinated. It's too many layers to put on. Well, that's why Paul sums up everything he's saying here. Put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In short, make sure that when you leave the house each morning, you are wearing that. Be more concerned that you have a loving attitude than you are to make sure that you have your phone on you. That's what Paul is saying, in essence, here. Now, how would you know that you are clothed with love? how would others know that you are? I love what church historian Roberta Bondi says in her book, To Love As God Loves. She says this, love is a way of seeing habitually and responding to the real, separate, individual needs of each of the people we encounter in our lives every single day. Love is a way of seeing habitually. It's it's the lenses through which we see the world in each other. That's what love does. That's how it begins. Now, secondly, not only will we demonstrate Christ-like character in the community, we will also practice Christ-exalting worship. When the peace of Christ rules our hearts and the word of Christ dwells in us, our worship will be Christ-exalting. Look again at how Paul begins this section in verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now, earlier Paul already talked about our vertical peace that we have with God back in chapter 1, verse 20. Now Paul is saying that in your relationships with other Christians, peace should be the dynamic, and every room of your life, let Jesus' peace come in and have its way, and reorganize everything around the way that He sees fit. It's very important to note that the absence of peace affects the purity of our worship before God. To have a peaceful heart with God, and especially in our relationship with others, is excellent preparation for worship on Sunday. It's too easy to judge the quality of worship based on aesthetics or sound. But what God cares most about is if the church is in one accord. Don't worry if you sing off-key. I don't. But make sure, no matter what, that you are of one accord. That's what most matters. That means children and parents have to work at getting along with each other. Couples in their relationship, in our friendships, do all that we can to make sure that the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts. Paul says this in Ephesians, strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace is so important that Jesus says it's actually a sanctioned reason to show up late to church or miss much of church. He said to His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, if you have an offering to give at the altar, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, go back and make it right before you you come to the altar. That's how important peace is to the life of the church. Peace is one of the best gifts we could ever have in life, isn't it? And the older I get, the more I see that to be true. Peace of conscience with God, peace in our relationships. It's no wonder that Paul adds to this line, and be thankful. Isn't it the case that when we are thankful people, it's much easier to be peaceable? And that when we experience peace with God and with one another, We tend to be more thankful. Now, if the peace of Christ is what prepares us for worship, then the word of Christ should characterize our practice of worship, both in our teaching and singing. I hope that what I'm about to say to you is very obvious. But when we come together as a church every Sunday, our hope is that all our singing and all our teaching is about the Lord Jesus Christ, about His death and about His resurrection. But beyond Sunday morning, it is our hope that when you get together in your small groups or you attend other ministry events at this church, that you are in the habit of talking about your life with Jesus regularly. That it's a normal occurring thing. Not just pastors or professors or preachers or ministry leaders, but all of us are called to teach each other about Jesus in very concrete ways. When I was in between jobs after seminary with my beautiful Master of Divinity diploma written in Latin in my office, on my home office wall, I received a a phone call from a fellow church member, and she prayed about my unemployment situation. And through her prayers, I was reminded that Jesus really did care about my unemployment, that he really was capable of making sure that my resume would be seen by the right people, that he really would help me on job interviews, These were critical lessons about Jesus she taught me through her prayers. Whether you have formal theological training or not, you have something to teach people about Jesus here. Now, what's really interesting is that on the heels of teaching one another, Paul mentions singing Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs complements the teaching about Jesus. In a sense, we might say that singing is a form of teaching in and of itself. And we are very blessed to be in a church where the hymns that we sing, the worship songs we sing, the choir anthems are not just well done, but carefully chosen to teach us about who God is and the truth about His character. We are very blessed to be in a congregation that does this week in and week out. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul is referring to when he says hymns and spiritual songs. Some people take hymns to mean songs about Christ. Uh, Some people take spiritual songs to be sort of spontaneous songs that people would sing while they are moved by the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting to note that Paul specifically mentions the psalms as a part of worship. Why does he do that? Well, the psalms, we know, were a key part of Israel's worship. worship. Jesus and His disciples, after the Passover, the gospel tells us they sang a psalm. We know that the early church preached and prayed the psalms. And Jesus tells us that the psalms tell us about Him and His ministry. These are good reasons to have the psalms as an important part of our spiritual life, as a spiritual practice in your prayer. But not only that, when we use the psalms, we are using God's inspired words in our worship and prayer. When you don't know what to pray, and you don't know what to say, you have 150 prayers right at hand. We also are able to join other Christians throughout the world and throughout history when we sing from the same songbook, the Psalms. And perhaps most amazing of all, Jesus Christ's spiritual life was strengthened by the Psalms even when he was on the cross. I want to encourage you, if you don't, to use the Psalms regularly in your life with God. Your prayer life will change. You'll learn more about the person of Jesus and about what his inner experience was like as he sought to live a life of obedience to God. Now, lastly, I want to wrap up this discussion the way that Paul does, So, he's told us about Christ-like character, and he's told us about Christ-exalting worship, and Paul ends ends this entire discussion by saying, whatever. He says, yeah, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Well, what does that mean? It means, remember, that as a Christian you were always in uniform. You were always on the clock to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever you do. It means that we should thank God for the opportunities He puts in front of us each day. It means that at the end of the day, we should give thanks to God for the things that we were able to fulfill as He commanded. There is nothing in your life that is irrelevant to Jesus your character, your worship, yes, it matters to Jesus, but so do all the particulars of your life. And this is not a burden. It is a high privilege to know that all that we do is of importance to the eternal King of the universe. Our relationships, how you act on a sports team, how you are on the hospital unit, how you are in your IT department, when you apply for colleges, when you raise your hand in class, talk to store cashiers, when you work on your taxes between now and April 15th, all of that is of importance to Jesus. Wherever you leave your fingerprints, they reveal your identity in Christ whether it's on big projects or small tasks, we are called to have a Christ-centered life. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yes, our character. Yes, our worship. But truly, all of our living. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the imprint of your life is now in our lives, both as individuals and as a church. And so, Lord, we want to reflect your character to all and forgive us for the ways that we fail to do that each day. How we lack strength, how we lack a vision of love. But thank you, Lord, that you still stick to us you still equip us day by day by your good spirit. So help us this week to live in a way that reflects your wonderful purposes in our character, in our worship, in everything that we do. To the glory of your great name. Amen.